Scott Fobble, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. It's uh, thanks for having me, Mario. It's, it'll, it's I'm excited to be here. This is a, uh, a somewhat seminal moment for the morning shakeout, as you are my first guest. Oh wow! So not to put you on the spot or anything, but this is going to be an experimentation of sorts, and I'm really excited to see where the conversation takes us. So let's uh, let's get rolling here. I've got a lot to talk about. Um, I was debating where I wanted to start. I think the you know the most logical place seems like the Frankfurt Marathon, given that you you know you just ran that and clocked to two twelve and is the twelfth fastest American debut of all time. But that's I mean I think that's too easy. I want to talk about burritos. Um, okay. That's a I know that's a big uh, big part of your life. You just mm-hmm. um, last week launched the Burrito Mafia, and I'm still not sure what to think about it. So I'd like you to tell me a little bit more about this little passion of yours and this new endeavor called the burrito mafia. Uh, okay. Um, well, I mean, there's the obvious fact that, uh, burritos are the single greatest food known to man, but, um, more specifically, I guess the, uh, the burrito mafia stemmed from, um, this thing where I tweeted a lot about burritos and then as I got more followers, uh, they started, other people started tweeting burrito pictures back at me and I thought it was kind of funny. And I was talking to, uh, a friend of mine and, uh, we were just kind of like, we should explore this and we should, um, see kind of where this takes us. And so, um, I sat down and I wrote a piece, um, about just kind of how the whole burrito thing started, what the origin story was, like why burritos are important uh, to me personally, like for greater reasons than just being delicious foods. And then um, from there, it was kind of like why, like how can we um, make this something like that is interesting to share and make this into sort of a community thing. And, um, uh, so we just kind of morphed that original piece about why we thought burritos were important into, um, this, uh, burrito mafia. And it kind of was like, it was just something that we thought would be funny and cool and like interesting to do. And, um, the burrito pins that we made, uh, the enamel pins were kind of an extension of that as well. Um, we just thought it would be funny to make burrito pins and we thought it would be like interesting. And then it ended up being like super easy. We just uploaded a little picture that we made to a site. And then like I put my credit card information in and then like five days later, 50 burrito pins showed up at our door. There you have So yeah. And so that was kind of it. And we, um, yeah, so we just kind of shared that and we kind of just want to make burritos into like a, um, I, in the piece, I call them a social lubricant because I think that's funny as well. Um, and yeah, we just kind of wanted to make sort of like a online community of people who enjoy burritos and also want to be, um, like positive towards each other and support each other, which is kind of how the burrito thing started in the first place. Um, since uh every friday after workouts um the whole college team the whole portland pilots team or whoever wanted to go we'd all go to this one burrito place 
And I share a lot of that in the piece, which um, it, you can find on uh, Sidious, um, Sidious Mag. Uh, cool. There's links there on the piece on um We'll put a link to Twitter. it in the show notes. Yeah, and you can find um, a lot of that stuff on my my Twitter account, too, and I've blasted it out. So, um, yeah, that's just kind of how it started, and that's sort of where that project is at the moment. And what's the response been like so far? It's been It's been less than a week. Did you get a lot of requests for pins? Did you have to put in another order or have you been underwhelmed <laughs> um, by, by um, your followers um, lack of uh, shared passion for burritos and pins? Well, for, yeah, for the first day, it was basically like running into a bunch of different issues with why the website wasn't working, but we finally got the website working. You can purchase a pin from my website. Uh, and we've sold a few. I don't, you know, hopefully we sell more and we can, we can do this again. Um, when we were talking about it, like after we thought just no one was buying it, but the actual website wasn't working, we decided maybe we should have started with a more generic, um, like thing to buy. But at the end of the day, it's all pretty silly. So it, if we don't make any money on it, that's fine. But, um, you know, uh, yeah, I've been a little, little underwhelmed, but I think that's mostly on me. Uh, you know, I'm, none of my followers owe me, oh, like, I don't feel like they, they're obligated to spend their money on a silly burrito pin that my friend and I made. I just, we just thought it would be fun to make them. All right. Well, little play on words. Let's put a pin in that right now. We may revisit it here in a little bit, (laughs) but let's, um, let's sort of get back to you as a, as a runner. You're a member of the Hoka Northern Arizona elite team based in Flagstaff. You've been there. Two years now, a little over two years since mm-hmm. you graduated from University of Portland, um, where you spent your collegiate days. You're originally from Colorado, so so you're a mountain man. Let's just talk about that transition from college to Northern Arizona Elite. What the appeal of joining that particular group was? Maybe what other options you were looking at, and how um, you know how much did Flagstaff as a mountain town and you as kind of a mountain boy uh, play into your decision to join the team? Um, I don't think that like the similarities between Flagstaff and Colorado made a super big difference to me. It was mostly like, um, the opportunity that existed here to be in a running community. I was, I was pretty sure I was going to be in Flagstaff, whether I was on Northern Arizona elite or not. Um, but uh, just cause a friend of mine, actually the same friend I made the burritos with, Stephen Kirsch, uh, he ran his fifth year for Georgetown and we were talking our senior year and we we're like, I was like, yeah, like I definitely am going to keep running. Um, I don't know where I had like sent out a running resume to as many groups and coaches as I could find, uh, the contact information for. And I was kind of waiting to hear back and he was like, yeah, I'm going to keep running too. And we were just talking and we we're like, we should just go to Flagstaff. Um, and figure it out. So, yeah, and figure it out. And if the Northern Arizona Elite thing comes through, that'd be spectacular. But if not, like, there seem to be a ton of people who, particularly in Flagstaff, who come to Flag, get a job, join the running community, you know, just figure out how to structure their lives in a way to be a competitive runner. And, um, that was kind of our plan. And, uh, yeah. I was very fortunate to um, catch the eye of Ben Rosario, and there are a lot of people who 
helped me out with that along the way. And but I was going to be here, I think, either way. Uh, I'm in a significantly better position now that I, or since I'm on the team, though. So, um, yeah, that was kind of how I how I got got here. And how soon after your arrival in Flagstaff did you join the team? Uh, I'd already signed my contract with Northern Arizona okay. Elite before I moved out here. And how much of a relief was that to know that? You had not only a training group to join once you got to flag and someone who was going to sort of steer the direction of your career, but also to have sponsorship uh, just a couple of years out of school, which is not easy to come by in this country. Yeah, um, it was, you know, it was a big relief. Um, I don't think that uh, I would have had a, such a successful like start to my career had I um, not had that, but, uh, you know, I mean, right off the bat, I wasn't the caliber of runner who like makes a salary right out of college. So I was very lucky to have the infrastructure and stuff around me, but, um, you know, it's not like an AZ elite was paying me a million dollars a year. Right. <laughs> um, so in a way it was like really great to, have like the, the direction and the infrastructure and the coaching and all that stuff taken care of and, and squared away. But like, I still, um, like there were still struggles and there was still like stress with like, how am I going to pay rent this month? And, um, you know, I had to borrow money from my parents. It's, you know, I, it's hard to find a job in Flagstaff. I had to kind of figure out ways to, um, just make money here and there, uh, especially, before I started racing and racing well enough to make money. But, um, yeah. So, um, you know, I'm can't go into like a ton of details about our contract, but, um, at first I wasn't, you know, I wasn't raking in the dough from, from Hoka right off the bat. Yeah. That came with results and you've had mm -hmm. some good results since you're in Flagstaff. You were fourth at the Olympic trials on the track in 2016, the 10,000, uh, I had alluded to earlier your debut at Frankfurt to 1235. So, you know, you've, I think you've more than kind of proven your medal since you've been there. Has that alone just opened up some doors for you in terms of maybe not needing to work part time and being able to focus more on your training or how, you know, how important have those results been to, you know, your trajectory as a professional? Yeah, I think. The, the results were great. Absolutely. Um, but I think like sometimes we get lost in like what the results were. We have these like waypoints that we kind of connect. But, uh, I think where I am now physically and like in my career, um, isn't necessarily tied to those results. Like, mm -hmm. like, uh, in terms of the Olympic trials, like finishing fourth and finishing 12th, isn't that different. You know, um, if you're outside of the top three, like you're not an Olympian and you, the other people kind of go one way, the Olympians go one way and everyone who was outside of that group kind of are on a different path. So, um, those particular results were great. And I'm very proud of both of those runs, but I don't necessarily know that like they were the kind of things that will be like 
defining moments necessarily. You know, they weren't like so great or so bad that they really changed my life trajectory or like what my five year, my goals are or yeah, it's just like they were, they were solid and they were great, but they weren't like life changing results by any means. Sure. What were some of the biggest adjustments for you moving to Flagstaff from Portland or from a collegiate environment to a professional environment aside from, as you had just mentioned, some financial insecurity at, at first, but just in terms of joining a new team, moving to a new town, working with a new coach. Can you go into some detail about some of those things and how you handled that transition? Yeah. Um, I guess like the biggest differences in my, for me was like at Portland, I, you know, I was, had five years of consecutive training and I was working out with people who were, you know, very talented runners and good runners, but particularly in cross country season, like I didn't have to be tuned up and ready to go every single day, particularly like on some workouts I just knew I was going to be very good at. Um, so if I wasn't super prepared or wasn't really mentally ready to go, I could kind of fake my way through a workout at Portland. Um, which is not the case here. Like if I am not on my A game, if I'm not taking care of the details, like I'll get tuned up in a workout. Um, it's particularly if it's a hard one. Um, I can't really fake it anymore. And I think that was like kind of a, like a big shock. Um, particularly cause when I came in to Flagstaff, uh, I had like just gotten the okay to be running again. I broke my foot at the end of my fifth year of college and, um, was in a boot all summer. So like, not only was I running with much better people, but, um, I was like also very out of shape at the start. So kind of like getting tossed into this, the deep end, I guess, if you, mm-hmm. you could say, um, that was like a really big shock for me. And, uh, I kind of just had to like buckle down and be like, look, this is like, you're going to struggle for a little while. And at some point, you'll come out of it and you'll be, you'll be better and you'll be ready to, to kind of be the runner that you know you can be and you can be competitive in these big races, but you're going to have to struggle for a little while. And, um, to Ben Rosario, our, my, our coach's credit, uh, you know, he didn't force me to race before I was ready. He didn't put me in positions to fail. Like he kind of tailored things to my current fitness and didn't try to force things Um, but it was still hard, you know, like, it's not like I enjoyed only being able to do 75% of a workout or, um, not being able to shift gears at the end. And it wasn't, I moved here in like September and it wasn't really until like late November, maybe early December where I felt like my old self where I could really open it up and yeah, open it up and really turn it over and, um, like kind of in a way, like take it to the guys that I was training with, which is Craig Lutz and Ryan Doner, who I had competed a lot against in college. And, um, yeah, so, you know, it was a, it was a hard couple months there, but, uh, I think Ben kind of just, you know, he, uh, Miyagi'd me into, into shape a little bit. Talk a little bit about the group dynamic of Northern Arizona elite and how, important that's been to your development as a professional coming from a team environment in college? Because we see a lot of post-collegiates 
who don't join a training group, they're on their own and they, they struggle after going from that team environment to being a, a lone wolf. But you were able to kind of transition from one team environment to a different kind of team environment. Um, and obviously your group has, has thrived in the last couple of years. So just go into a little more detail about that. Yeah. I think the team dynamic for me was super helpful because we had a lot of people who'd been around the block a few times. So like, like, I mean, Ben Bruce, he was like my professional running Sherpa for a little while because he has experienced like every, um, everything you can really experience as a pro. He's kind of been through it. He's been a pro for a long time. Um, and so like, it's a very different world. Um, and so to have veterans on the team who you can just go to immediately, you really learn about it a lot more than if I was just kind of like figuring it out and going to these races here and these races there and just kind of trying to make it. Um, it was nice to have people who understood um, the professional running scene and kind of shape the way I saw the professional running scene. Cause it's, it's not like what you expect. Like you're not getting flown first class all over the country to the exact races you want. And if you make money at a race, you're not getting paid immediately. And, um, that was like a big shock. I kind of just thought like, if you made money, they gave you a check when you, they took you back to the airport to fly you back home. And that's just, that's not the case. And there's a million examples like that, that, were just the reality was different from my expectations. So, um, having like the guidance of a vet like Ben Bruce or, you know, Matt Yano, Scott Smith, we added Aaron Braun not that long after, um, I joined a year or so after I joined and also on the women's side, Steph Rothstein and, and Kellen Taylor were, um, it was like really nice to have them kind of show me and the other younger guys, the ropes, as far as like how it all worked. Um, and hear some of their stories about how it all worked. And then it's also great. Like we have a good relationship, especially the guys on the team is who, you know, I think the women on the team have a great relationship as well. But, um, on the men's side, we, uh, have a group chat that, you know, blows up pretty regularly. And we're all often going out to dinner together or like grabbing a meal after a, a run or just meeting up to run on our, our on your own days. Um, so I think it's it's really nice to have a group of of people who truly do enjoy hanging out with each other. So the um the transition I guess from being on one team to being on another wasn't that different. Mm-hmm. There's still just like a group of guys who care about each other and want to hang out together and train together and stuff. Um it was just different to have like 33-year-old teammates instead of 18-year-old teammates. Right. Was the biggest change, yeah. So when many people think of a professional athlete or a professional runner, they're like, oh, well, this person's job is to train hard, run fast, win races. And, and it certainly is to some degree, but it's really hard to make a sustainable career off of that. What, um, lessons have you learned in your first couple of years as a, as a professional on the, on the business side of things? Um, results need to be there, but you've got to do so much more than just train hard and run fast. If you want to be doing this for any real period of time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think the people who have really long careers are either the people who are lighting it up on the track or on the course, um, 
or there are people who are really like they have a big fan base, you know? Um, and the way you kind of like cultivate a fan base, you know, whether it's social media or this or that, like if you have a platform and you can like leverage that, you will have a spot in the professional world. There are enough people who care about, um, people's fan bases and bringing their fan bases to this event or that event or, um, attracting them to this brand or that brand that you can kind of make it, um, in the sport based on that, like to be a really big star, there are guys like Dathan who, Dathan Ritzenhein, who's run super fast, but isn't like the most active on social media. Um, and there, then there are people like Steph Rothstein, who is a very good runner, obviously super solid. Um, but she's like a big star because she has 65,000 fans because she's found her voice and she's done a good job of communicating um, her message, uh, to a lot of people. So I think like cultivating a fan base, like finding a way your niche in the sport and a way to like, um, continue making it, uh, continue to like keep this as a job, um, is crucial. I think a lot of young kids think they can just, and me included, think that you can just come in and then call yourself a professional runner and people will mm-hmm. like give you things, but there needs to be like a reason for you to like for people to go to bat for you. It's not, no one's giving you a favor. Like even your sponsors, like Hoka has been great to me and I'm super grateful for everything, all the support that they've given me, but like, they're not doing me a favor by sponsoring me. Right. I'm, you know, it's a partnership. Um, I am expected to do certain things for them and, you know, I'm like compensated commiserate to what my, value to the brand is. So I think that understanding is like, you have to create your own value is something that was weird to me at first. Cause I thought I just had value, but I, I didn't, I was, you know, a 28, 40 guy out of college and been an all American a few times, but there's like 40 guys who do that every single year. So why would anyone take an extra interest in me? So I think like really, that would be my advice to someone who is like, trying to be a professional runner is like really sit down and really think about like where your niche is. Um, and look at people who've created their own niches, like say like Heather camp, for example, example, you know, great miler, but her niche and she's found it is like being a road miler. She's like the queen of the road mile. And, uh, that's, that's great that she found a little way to be a professional runner. Um, because there are only so many spots on an Olympic team or a world's team or right. on a podium, you know? If I could jump in real quick, how regularly do you guys and gals at Northern Arizona Elite talk about that as a team, the business side of things and finding your niche and creating a brand, not only for yourself, but for your group as a whole and maybe the value that that brings to sponsors? Because your group's really unique in that, you post your training logs online. Many professionals are very secretive about that. You're very active on social media individually in your own ways, but collectively as a group, um, your team has created content around key races and buildups and the lifestyle that you guys live. And that's, that's really unique in 
our sport. How, how much do you guys talk about that outside of your workouts and your races and planning for the season and whatnot? Um, I mean, like officially we talk about it probably every week or so. Um, Ben, our coach, Ben, uh, he sends out like a social media report every month that details like how many times we post on Instagram and how many times we've tweeted and what, how, uh, how many followers we've grown, we've gained. Um, and that's broken down individually so we can all see how well we're doing as a, as an individual. And then also as a group, we can see the growth. Um, and then, you know, in most of our weekly emails, Ben will mention something about, um, remember to share the journey. And that's part of our, the mission statement of the group is mm-hmm. to share every part of the group, the journey. Um, and then unofficially we probably talk about some aspect of the business side of running every, every day, I guess, or every, you know, really frequently on just like on easy runs or whatever. And sometimes it's serious and sometimes it's joking, but yeah, it's, we talk about it quite a bit. We think it's important. Um, and we think it's interesting to talk about as well. Cool. I think this is a good segue just to talk more about burritos, really. Um, but you <laughs> specifically, so, you know, you've become, for better or worse, known as the burrito guy. You've got the burrito mafia. There's some excitement around that in some level of relatability, um, amongst those who, who follow you. But you're also kicking off a new project, which you're calling off course. And <clears throat> I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about that and the genesis of it and what you hope to achieve by, by getting this off the ground. So I guess the, you know, the first specific question I have is when did the idea for this project come to you and what finally spurred you to kick it off and put it out into the world? Um, I think like (laughs) the genesis of this, it's been like kind of popping around in my mind that I would like to do a project like this for a while, maybe even a a whole year. Um, but then some things kind of came into place. Uh, a few friends of mine started their own creative firm. It's called rabbit wolf creative. And I was like, I want to support them. Um, I want to, and I think that they can help me, uh, share my vision for, um, like this project. That's basically it's around, the, the project is about sharing, um, like the journey of running through a way that's not about, it's like not in the same voice that most elite athletes, uh, share. And I think it's extends probably far outside of, uh, professional running. I think that elite athletes in general share the elite side of the sport in one way. And it's kind of about, like the way they perceive the sport is, uh, is like delayed gratification, doing it for the grind, like all these extrinsic aspects of the sport. And we, I, I wanted to share the, um, the intrinsic reasons that we do a sport. So like, why do people love running? Like, why do people do it? There are millions of people who don't get paid to run and yet they're out there every day putting one foot in front of the other. And it's like exploring the similarities there as to why people do that was so much more interesting to me than, um, sharing another post about like, you know, how I'm going to do anything I can to win or like, all like lay my life on the line or whatever to, you know, it's like, that is so boring to me now. 
um, I kind of want to share things in a different way. And, um, you know, my friends creating a creative firm was kind of like the vehicle to, to doing that. So partnering with them was great. And, um, yeah. And just trying to figure out a way to share this in a unique way and an interesting way. And we, I think we, you know, this is going to be our first, or this is our first one. And, um, I hope we really knock it out of the park. I really think it'll be interesting and fun and, um, yeah. And different, very different, I who, guess. Who do you think it, well, I shouldn't say, who do you think, who do you want to speak to? Um, who, who is your audience? Who do you think will connect with you on this level? Um, to be honest, I'm not well, entirely sure. Reach? Yeah. I guess I hope to reach like, I don't know. It's hard for me to put like a word on it, but I guess when I was writing the blog piece that accompanies the video, um, I just kind of wrote what I thought was important to write and interesting to write. And I think that there are people who, uh, will identify with those things. I hope there are. I mean, maybe there won't be. I don't have no idea, but, um, you know, I've written similar things in the past and they've gotten pretty good reviews, but, or not reviews, but good feedback, um, from people online. And I guess those people again is the people I'm speaking to is like mm -hmm. the people who aren't necessarily interested in, uh, like seeing, you know, they might follow the elite side of the sport, but they actually want to like learn about the, um, like they could care less the people who do it Two twelve. Yeah. Yeah. Like, or maybe they care about two twelve. or the fact that I ran two twelve. but they, I hope that people appreciate that I'm not writing about running two twelve. Mm -hmm. So like bringing that different voice, I think that's kind of who I'm writing for is the people who want to see a different voice on the, from the elite side of the sport, people who, um, I'm not writing for the tip of the spear anymore. Kind of like the mid, the mid pack people who might follow the sport and care about the sport, but don't necessarily have like a, a reason to be running, you know, there's right. like those intrinsic reasons that maybe are hard to articulate. And that's kind of who I want to speak to. Yeah. And, and I think it's a brilliant idea because if we look at where the sport struggles, one of the biggest areas is in the elite side of the sport, connecting with the masses, um, especially those who are running some of the same races as you in marathons. They just don't, um, they can't, you know, they can't think about a 212 marathon that's so far out of their realm of possibility and they just might as well think you're an alien. And I think many athletes, um, there are some who do it really well and they, you know, they've found that way to connect, um, beyond the numbers, beyond the grind, beyond the hustle and kind of find those, uh, you know, that common ground that exists between, you know, competitive age groupers and the elite and showing that there are more similarities than there are differences. And I think in order for the sport to grow, in order for the sports fan base to grow, there needs to be more of that. So I, I commend you on your efforts. I look forward to following along here in the next few months. Um, yeah, as, thanks. I mean, I've enjoyed your writing to this point, but it'll be even more exciting to see this series sort of evolve, um, over time. So kudos to you for doing that on, on that note. I mean, you've, 
You've written a lot. I mean, your blog on your website goes back quite a ways. You've covered a number of different topics. Um, you've certainly got your own unique voice. Talk a little bit to me about your relationship with just writing in general and when you realize that it was a means for you to express yourself or think through things or share your ideas with other people. When did that start? Um, I think the first time I was like, that I like wrote something and I was like, man, that's cool. Like I just wrote that. And that's something I'm like super proud of was probably my second or third year in college. It was really like, I can kind of even remember the exact like time I was like in college and I was struggling writing. I was just not very good at it because I didn't really understand like how to organize a paper or like how to organize an argument. But I was reading, um, the book outliers at the time by Malcolm Gladwell. And no matter what you think of Malcolm Gladwell, one thing he's super good at is stating a thesis, proving it, and connecting things back to the thesis. And so I was writing this paper, and I was like, what if I just do that? Like, that's how it works. Like, that's a good writer. I'm going to try to copy that, but with this topic. And um, then as I kept reading stuff by Malcolm Gladwell or David Epstein or... Um, Oliver Sacks or uh, all these other writers who are like really good and interesting and funny um, in their own ways. I was like, what if I tried that? And then what if I tried that? And then, oh, this didn't really work. Like that doesn't fit with how I like to write or like I tried this and I didn't, it didn't work very well or I tried this thing, but it worked super well. And so kind of this process of figuring out what writing techniques, um, work worked for me which ones i was good at and which ones i was not good at has kind of like it went through college and i wrote my thesis statement or my thesis paper and i wrote you know a bunch of papers along the way and then all of a sudden you get out of college and there's really not you don't write things anymore you don't right. write papers and so i was like you know as a professional runner in general you have a ton of free time and so i kind of just sat down and i was like what if I tried to write again? And at first I was rusty. I like didn't really remember all the little like tricks that I had used in college. Like how did I connect this idea with that idea? But as I kept writing and as it came back to me, it got easier and easier and more and more fun. And, um, it was like interesting to explore ideas that I wasn't told to write about either, which is something you don't usually get in college. Like you get told what to write about and that's fine. But, um, it was fun to like take the tools I had learned in college and be like, okay, now I don't need a formal thesis statement. Now I don't need a five paragraph essay. Now I can write in a way that I really want to write in whatever way I want to write. I don't need proper conventions. I can use slang. I can do all these things that I never was able to. And I think that journey to like, basically just keep like trying new things and figuring out new ways to say something was in super interesting to me. And, uh, I think really it was like January of 2016 was when I wrote something and I was like, that's really good. That's really good. That's something I really want to post. And it was like a, a race. I want to share that, you know, and it was a race recap of, the great Edinburgh cross country race. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was the first time that I like had a thought that I genu genuinely felt was like 
I guess wise might be the right word, um, or somewhat like insightful or like shared this feeling that I had in a way that was understandable. And so I've just kind of continued to try to do that. Um, but with different waypoints around my life and, uh, different feelings that I've had, just trying to articulate them in an interesting way. Um, and then all along the way, trying to make it lighthearted, mm-hmm. almost all of my pieces have a lot of jokes in them and are general, genuinely attempting to be funny, whether or not people think they're funny or not is a whole nother thing. Maybe I'm not getting any laughs, but, um, yeah, I try to just be funny and explore little ideas that come into my head in a way that, um, in a way that is interesting to me and fun to write about. Do you notice any parallels between process of writing and the process of training? Sometimes. Yeah. Like it was actually, it's funny that you bring that up. I was trying to formulate a piece that's kind of like that. Um, it's about, it was about like progress and like the parable I used is like the other day, um, my iPhone wouldn't charge because there was a bunch of like shit stuck in the, um, charging port. Mm -hmm. Sorry. I don't know if you're going to be allowed to swear. This is an R rated podcast. podcast. Just roll with it. Okay. Yeah. Well, there was a bunch of shit in my, my charging port. And so I was like, I had this little toothpick or like I had a bunch of toothpicks cause I kept breaking and I was just like plugging away at like trying to scrape the lint out. And my parents, I was at my parents' house and they did not believe that it would ever work again. So my mom was like Googling like new iPhone plans and like how much is it going to cost? And I was like, no, this is going to work. I'm going to make this work. And all of a sudden, like I got this giant piece of like basically dust out of my, charging port and I stuck it in there and then the, it worked. I had charge, like it was charging again. And I think that's similar to like both running and writing. Cause like sometimes you're just like plugging away and you're trying to like, you're working really hard on something and it's not going well. And you just have to kind of be delusional and tell yourself that it is going well. And then all of a sudden something will, something good will happen. Something will click. And like a, yeah, a piece will come together or like, a piece of lint will come of, out of the charger. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> yeah, a piece of lint will come out of the charger or like you'll rip off a few workouts or like you'll finally figure out that one like connecting sentence that's going to bring these two paragraphs together. And, um, yeah, I was trying to like write a piece about that, about how like progress sometimes it f- doesn't feel like it's working. And sometimes you just have to be a little delusional and tell yourself it's going well until it does go well. Um, but it, it wasn't as funny as I was hoping it to be. So I'm not, I'm going to keep working on it and maybe it'll, maybe it's like a good parable in itself. Like the actual writing of the piece is about what I'm writing about. Uh, <laughs> but, um, I think you should, yeah, I it. think, okay, I'll try. I'll, uh, maybe that'll be the, the next one, the next, uh, off course. Right on. We haven't talked at all really about training during this conversation, but I certainly, the coach in me wants to touch on it a little For bit. For sure. Um, since moving to Flagstaff, how has, I mean, you've moved up in distance. You just debuted in the marathon. I mean, mm-hmm. you did, you know, prior to that, um, I mean, you were in a half marathon in college and you've certainly done a little of that in the last couple of years and you've stayed on the 10 K on the track. So you've, you've been racing some similar distances, but how has your training evolved, um, as a professional from your collegiate days, if at all, or if much, um, some or, or what aspects yeah, so like, of it have changed? Yeah, I think 
one thing that changed a lot is like when I was at, at UP, basically all of the workouts were the same hardness. Mm -hmm. Like I was better at some, but they were all the same level of difficulty. And, uh, that was fine. It got me, I was, you know, I was in pretty good shape for a lot of diff a lot of my career, um, at UP. But when I got to Flagstaff, it kind of changed. Like there are more like super key workouts mm -hmm. that you really need to hit. And they're, they're like, you're going to hit, the, you need to hit this one. Like this is a big day. Um, which we didn't really have in college. Like, uh, like at college, we just didn't really do those like knockdown drag out like sessions, um, that we've done a few times at, in, um, in Flagstaff. So like an example of one of those sessions, uh, was like before the Olympic trials, um, maybe it was like three weeks before the trials in 2016, I ran, uh, three by two miles at, in Flagstaff. So at 7,000 feet and the, we ran like 940, 930, 920. And it was like, like I was wrecked. Like the next day, like I had gone, I went so deep into the well to hit that 920 at the end. And maybe that doesn't sound particularly impressive to other people who are like, Oh, like that's not even your 10 K pace, but up in Flagstaff, that's a, that's a really big session. That's a huge session. Or, uh, yeah, that was, you know, I was wrecked, but I came off of it way fitter as long as we got the recovery in or, mm -hmm. you know, in flags, like in this last buildup for the marathon, there were like three or four sessions that it was like, these are big days. You got to hit, we got to hit these ones. And, um, there are a lot of other workouts that are, or some other workouts that are kind of more gimmies. Mm -hmm. So like if we do 25 by a quarter or 20 by a minute or, um, something like that, that's, those are kind of gimmies. But if we're going down to Camp Faraday and we're doing 10 by a mile or, um, we did one workout that was like a three mile tempo at 457 and then, um, three by mile going 440, 435, 430, three mile tempo at the end of that 452. It's like that was a day that you had to hit. Um, well, that's how it felt at the time. Uh, obviously no one workout like defines a training segment, but that would kind of be like the biggest difference, I guess, between high school or between college and professional life. Like there are days you just, you got to hit it. Um, and it's going to be really hard and you're going to be wrecked, but we got to get in good shape. You've been training and competing at a pretty high level since high school. Um, over 10 years now, how have you shifted your thoughts on recovery as you've gotten older? Not that you're that old and you're only 26, <laughs> but, um, as you know, as you've accumulated miles on your body, um, as you've moved up in distance, as you've started training harder, what have you learned maybe particularly in the last couple of years since turning professional in terms of taking care of yourself between those hard sessions and and what do you do to take care of yourself between those hard sessions at a very high level? And then also, um, talking about the same marginal gains or whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, I think I was always lucky to have a good coach in high school who didn't, you know, he didn't burn us out. Um, and then a good coach and or a good situation in college being in the WCC, we didn't, um, you know, we didn't have track conference. We didn't have indoor conference. Like there were no times that I ever had to double 
And so I think seeing other people have those like really, I mean, it's just a stupid system for like college coaches to make kids run the 10 K one day. And then the 5 K the next day is like seeing that from afar and being like, Oh yeah, that's a dumb thing that people do. Like kind of gave me perspective on like what the wrong things to do are or like really loading a kid up and making them race like 12 or 15 times in six months, you know, like you're just not going to make it all the way through that usually. Um, so seeing other people make those mistakes and seeing people burnt good runners burnt out by the time they get to regionals mm-hmm. gave me a perspective on like, um, what the wrong way to do it was in, in college. And then as I got to a pro to be a pro, it's like, it's kind of like looking to the people who do it right. You know? So some of the things I've learned that I think are super important. Um, most of them are super little, you know, it's like I bring a snack to every single morning run. Um, I bring, and that does, I think that does two things. Like, first of all, it's important to refuel obviously, um, after your, uh, after a run, but also like I'm not starving after a run. So like I can go for a run, eat my snack. And then the next thing I do doesn't have to be procuring food. I have like the energy and, um, giving yourself the ability. Yeah. The ability to go home and like do some stretches or roll out or whatever it may be that I feel like I need to do to reset from that run and focus on the next one. Um, so I think bringing a snack, um, to runs, uh, I nap, I try to nap, um, at least like four or five times a week. Um, I think that's been a big, big thing. How long's a nap for you? Uh, I set my alarm. So I, I get in bed and read for like, um, I just read until I get super sleepy and I set my timer for like 90 minutes. And so usually I read for, uh, read for 20 or 30 minutes, sleep for about an hour. And then I get up and I have a cup of coffee so that I'm not groggy anymore. And then just kind of ride out the rest of the day. Um, whether usually I have a second run and so yeah, napping I think is important. Um, how much are you sleeping at night primarily? I, yeah, I go to bed at like between nine and nine thirty, and get up at six thirty. So what is that? Like nine, nine and a half hours plus a nap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sleep I think is super important. And then the other thing I do that I think has really helped me both stay injury free and like have energy is that I don't care about my weight except for like, I don't, I didn't, don't suck out. Like I don't try to be super skinny. Um, except I had like a little suck out phase before, the, <laughs> before Frankfurt, like the two weeks before the carbo load, I tried to be like conscious about what I was eating, but for the 17 or whatever weeks before that, it's like, if I wanted a bowl of cereal, I ate a bowl of cereal. It's not a big deal. It was more important to me to like be satisfied right. than it was to be two pounds lighter. Um, and I think that sometimes you see that like these people are like super skinny and really, really fit, but they're like fit five weeks out from the big race. And then they either like get hurt or like they just get burned out. And it's like, it's just not sustainable. You only have, yeah, for sure. So I try to like limit those not sustainable aspects of my training to very short periods. Looking at your training specifically for Frankfurt, that was your first marathon. So your mm-hmm. first marathon 
build up, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, how was that training different from preparing for a 10K or even preparing for a half marathon? And what aspects of that training do you feel were most beneficial to you having a good day? I think the biggest thing was the mileage. Like we really cranked up the mileage to, you know, I, before that I was running like a hundred to 110. And, um, then the, during the marathon segment, I was up around 120 for about five weeks in a row. And that's like, it doesn't seem like that much, but that's a big difference. The mileage was a big thing. And then also, uh, like the workouts that we did weren't particularly new. Like Ben Rosario is a super strength based guy. And so, um, we've done, I've done super long steady states at marathon effort. And like, I've done a lot of these mile repeats or whatever, but when they're all back to back to back to back, they really, um, I think you get really big gains when you have a super specific training block where basically every workout is geared towards one, the, the like, um, trials of one event. Um, so I think that was a big, a big thing is like, really, we only did specific stuff in the marathon buildup and we kept the marathon buildup pretty short. So we were only really doing marathon training, true marathon training for like nine weeks before the, before the marathon. And mm-hmm. the two weeks of that was a taper. So like the 10 or 11 weeks before that was like, it was just about getting fit, but it wasn't about getting specifically fit. Mm-hmm. So really cramming those specific sessions together, I think made a big difference. So you're coming into the marathon training cycle, you know, pretty, you know, pretty fit. You're not, you're not starting from square one once you kick off the quote unquote official marathon training. Yeah, no, not at all. We started training in June. So like I ran the Boulder Boulder last year and then we took a break and a break for us is usually like a month almost of easy running, but easy running or no running. So we've got a week or two weeks off and then some easy miles and a couple weeks of just easy miles and then a couple easy workouts. And then, so we started basically working out hard in June. Let's, uh, let's pause real quick. So I want to, I want to go a little bit deeper on that because I think there are going to be a lot of people listening to this who are interested in what you do during a break and mm-hmm. during time off. So you'd mentioned oh, you, take, for sure. you take a week or two off um, and then you start some, some easy running. How do you deal with that from a mental and emotional perspective? I think the average age group runner, at least in my experience, they, you know, they don't like this idea of time off because they've spent all this time developing their hard earned marathon fitness and they don't want to see it go away by taking time off running or by reducing their mileage or by stopping doing workouts and long runs and all of that stuff. Um, so I guess two part question one, how important is it to get away from that stuff for a little while? And two, how do you deal with it from a mental and emotional perspective when you're, when you're detraining essentially? Yeah. I mean, I don't like, it's never been a problem for me to take time off. Like, um, usually by the end of a segment, like I'm kind of looking forward to, um, being, being done. And usually I like to end my seasons in like one race that I'm super excited for. So, um, I think one thing that is nice is like, I'm not looking forward to anything during my break. Like there's not another thing on the schedule that I want to do. Um, 
So not really having a goal for a little while is, is kind of nice and freeing because, um, yeah, you just don't have to be disciplined. So I think like mentally and emotionally, it's, it's pretty easy to just not put something on the schedule. Just let um, go. Yeah. Just let go. Like it doesn't like why, what's the point of being fit right now is a question I sometimes like people should ask themselves, you know, like what's the point of being, of being fit in June when you're trying to run a marathon in November? It doesn't, those two things aren't connected. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's an easy thing to like think about and work on, um, at least for me. Um, and then also like, I think one reason it's easy for me to be, to take time off and unplug from running is like when I'm running, when I'm training, I'm all in like a hundred percent in on running. So, um, there are a lot of sacrifices that I make during a segment that I would love to not have to make. Like I enjoy going to happy hour and drinking margaritas. Like I like doing that. Um, but I don't do it during a segment because like, I think recovery is super important. Mm -hmm. And at certain times in a, in a, a season, like, like a margarita is the opposite of what you need. Like, I wish I didn't know that sometimes, but I do like, I know that. And so after a hard workout, you need like protein synthesis and glycogen you need um, a burrito. absorption. And yeah, yeah, for sure. You need a burrito and not the Marg, but I love Margs too. So I think if you're super disciplined during your season, it helps the off season because there's stuff that you've been looking forward to. Um, like drinking those margaritas or like staying up late or like going camping or whatever it is you like to do that takes energy away from running is that's what you should do during your, during your break. Um, and then once you're done with your break, you can lock back in again. You can be like, okay, like I had my margaritas. I went camping. I stayed up late. Like I didn't worry about all these little things. Now I, now it's time to worry about them again. So I think shifting that mindset from being like super disciplined to just being free from all that is kind of the biggest thing for me during a break. It's like truly resetting. And then another thing we were, I was talking about with some of my teammates, cause a lot of us are coming off a break right now is, um, like for the first couple of weeks of running, like if I don't want to run, I just don't do it. I don't run. Like if I don't want to go out for a double or if I want to run two or three miles less, because the first couple of weeks aren't that important and there are going to be days down the road where it is important and I'm going to need to force myself and I'm going to need to force doubles and I'm going to feel like garbage and still have to run. So why make like, why put that strain on yourself now? It's not that important yet. Cool. Last thing I want to touch on is the Frankfurt marathon. Your first. Yeah. Good day for you. Two twelve thirty five debut. You ran with two of your teammates. You ran with Scott Smith. You ran with Matt Yano. You guys finished within ninety seconds of each other. Scott was just mm-hmm. ahead of you. Matt was just behind you. Presumably, I know Scott spends some time uh, not in Flagstaff, but presumably you guys trained together for a good chunk of the block. Talk a little bit just about that that kind of group dynamic to have three of you training for this big one day uh, that you all want to knock it out of the park and then for it to go well. And then during the race itself, how you help each other out or even, or just keyed off of each other, uh, kept one another honest 
on the way to running between, you know, 212 and 213, which three of you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I thought it was great to, um, to have those guys. I think that was a big, one of, one of the big reasons I went to, wanted to run Frankfurt was, um, having not gone through a marathon segment before is I didn't really know what it was supposed to feel like. So having two guys who have gone through, I think it's like 12 between them. They were a good barometer. Like I could text them and be like, yo, my legs feel like dog shit. <laughs> like, is that, is, do your guys' legs feel like dog shit? And they were usually like, yes. And I was like, okay, this is how it's supposed to be. Um, so just from like having from their using their experience, uh, that was one big thing that I, I really thought was super helpful for me. But then, uh, from a bigger group perspective is like, there were days for all of us where it just wasn't, it didn't, we didn't feel like a hundred percent. And so on those days, I think like we never, uh, we never forced anyone to lead if they weren't feeling good. So like, if you felt like felt bad, you could tuck in and just ride, ride the wheel or whatever you want to call it. Like just get dragged along to the workout. And then when, it, when you did feel good, it was your turn to lead and somebody else was, was getting dragged along. So I think just the balance of like having three guys to work together and like not necessarily feeling like you need to be on it every single day you don't need to be a superhero every day when you're in a group. Like sometimes another person's going to feel like a superhero and you can just kind of key off of them. Um, and I think that was really, really helpful because there were days when I just could not have gotten through a workout, um, by myself, like long days when I just wasn't going to be able to do it. Um, cause it's mentally and physically draining to not, or to be alone, you know? So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, like, mental and physical side where we were kind of like boosting each other up and not worrying about, um, doing it all ourselves was super helpful. And then in the race, this, that was the same, same thing. Like it was really good to know that I was next to these people. Like, even if I wasn't feeling great, like I had done all the work that they had done. Right. So I could be there, you know, I was supposed to be there. I wasn't, there was no reason why I was in over my head. I wasn't in over my head. I was right next to these two people I had trained with, um, for a really long time. And, um, I think Scott Smith's perspective on that, which he, he, uh, posted to his blog, um, on the whole training segment was super interesting because he had a bad segment. Like I'm not speaking out of turn when I say that a lot of workouts went poorly for Scott. Um, and so for him to just kind of like nut up, on the race and be like, it doesn't matter. Like those workouts are, uh, they're done. They're gone. They're behind us. Like, um, he balled out. Like that was amazing for him to, um, have such a special last 10 K where like I had had a way better segment than him. Like by all measures, if you just looked at our training logs, you're like, this person is fitter than this person. Mm -hmm. And I should have been, but he was just so strong and so tough and caught such a great day. Um, that I was really, really happy for him to like, for it to all come together for him. Cause he's had some pretty like rough conditions with heat or, you know, whatever it was. Um, so for it to all come together for him, that was really special for all of us too. Um, cause he deserves it so much. 
Last question. What was that moment like just after the finish line? Um, you knew Scott had finished just ahead of you. You crossed and then, you know, short time later, Matt crossed. Did you guys have a moment there at the finish line? And what was said in that moment if you did? Yeah. Yeah. We definitely had a moment. We were, we all hugged each other and I think we all kind of like, uh, like when you finish a marathon, at least when I did, like, I was very emotional. Like, I don't really know why. Um, I was very happy and I was very proud of what I had accomplished and what we'd all accomplished. But like, I just started kind of crying. Like I, it was so weird. Like I didn't, I wasn't sad at all. Or like, I was just so tired that my body was like, you're going to cry now. And so to kind of just like hug these guys who we trained so hard with and like, we'd all suffered so much at certain points in the, in the training segment and in the race, um, Uh, it was really cool to just like give them a big hug and, um, just kind of like, an un- unspoken yeah. understanding in that moment. Yeah. And thank them for like everything that we'd all done for each other and just such an amazing experience. Uh, and then I sobbed a little bit. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it was, it was a pretty special moment and, you know, I'm going to remember it for a long time. There were some fun pictures taken that I've got, you know, saved on my phone and, uh, sometimes I just look at him and it was like, that was a really cool, that was a really cool day. Right on. I think that's a good place to end it. Uh, yeah. before we, before we split, where can listeners find you online on social media? Where can they follow your new project off course? I think the best place to go would be, um, my website, which is just scottfobble.com. Um, but you can also find I'm going to be pumping out a ton of information on it, uh, from my Twitter account. That's at Scott Fobbs. My Instagram is at S Fobbs. Um, you know, I'm pretty good at, at disseminating information. So, uh, if you follow me in any one of those three capacities, I think you'll, you'll get the message. Cool. And I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thanks. Thank you so much for your time, Scott. It was fun talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Mario. It was a good, good time.